Welcome and thanks for tuning in to the debut of the Lottery Podcast on the Blue Wire. I'm John Wasserman, lead NBA draft writer for Bleacher Report. And if you're listening, I'm guessing you have some idea of what this conversation here is going to include. We're talking NBA draft. It's two weeks away. This year could be wacky. I mean, we got an Anthony Davis trade likely coming. Mike Conley on the block. It sounds like every scout's board is significantly different. I've heard some scouts rank a guy top 10 and another scout rank that same guy in the 30s. I've been doing my best uh, talking to teams, agents, trying to get a feel for what the hell is going on behind the scenes. And for this first episode, I really wanted to bring on someone who knows the prospects inside and out. He's got to be the number one most requested podcast scouting analyst out there. Um, Not only does he know the prospects, but he really does a good job of articulating their strengths, weaknesses, their potential fit. Cole Zwicker from the Zep, uh, from the Stepien. Cole, what's going on, my man? It's going well. That was a hell of an introduction, and you got the name right too. So you're on fire here. <laughs> I mean, it's it's it sounds just the way it's spelled. Do people really butcher your name? Uh, my name and the name of the Stepien. So you got both. <laughs> All right, two, for, two for two. We're off to a good start here. Um, listen, I just let's just mock draft, right? Let's. Uh, I mean, I think that's what the people want to hear. Um, I, I'm interested in hearing how this plays out out loud. I'm so used to just you know, writing about it. Um, but to talk about it out loud is kind of cool. We'll, we'll bounce some ideas off each other. Uh, good fits, certain options teams are going to have, uh, potential trades. Um, and we're not going to start with the New Orleans Pelicans because I don't know how much longer I could talk about Zion Williamson. In fact, <laughs> let's see uh, the challenge will be to, to get through this podcast with this being the last time we mentioned Zion, although that might be difficult. But let's skip Let's skip right ahead to the Memphis Grizzlies because I think the draft starts at number two. And right away, right off the bat, uh, the lottery happens. ESPN's John Gavoni reports that the Grizzlies are already telling teams that they're going to take John Morant. Uh, Not to downplay that report, John is as plugged in as anyone in the business. But it's very rare that after the lottery happens, even the the lottery winner doesn't announce who they're going to take. They kind of BS and say that they're going to look at all options. And they certainly never hear the number two team say that they're they're ready to take a certain player. Um, If you are the Grizzlies, is there an obvious choice here between John Morant and R.J. Barrett? I'm not sure if it's absolutely obvious. I think coming out and saying you're taking Morant made a lot of sense to me as far as positioning. You let it be known that you're going to take the prospect who I think many teams consider the higher upside, higher trade value guy. So that makes sense. If you're going to deal, let's say the Suns, for example, are going to move up to two, you know, you have to deal with the Grizzlies and not the Knicks. So I think from that standpoint, it made some sense. I have Morant in a tier with RJ Barrett, Jarrett Culver, uh, Brandon Clark. So I, I think that it's more expansive. It's not necessarily like last year where I had Jaron Jackson alone in tier two. I thought that he was like a can't miss prospect. Morant, I think, can be very good. I do think I would take him. I, I try to empathize with these GMs. If I was at number two, I think I would take John Morant. I agree. I have Morant um, also in the same tier as Barrett. And uh, I think if I had to pick in a vacuum, I'd, I'd take Morant. I'm a little more excited about him. What do you think about Morant going to a team like Memphis, who, as much as we love Jaron Jackson Jr., uh, the rest of the roster is kind of bare. You know, would that be a problem for a guy like Morant, who averaged over five turnovers last year? It's always going to be a problem with rookie point guards. Right now, as currently constructed, of course, Memphis still has Mike Conley on the roster. I think he will help that transition as far as taking some ball handling responsibility away from Morant. We don't know. This kind of goes into your introduction. We don't know about all the trades that are going to happen. We could see you know, Conley moved at a later time. Maybe he gets moved during the draft. I would doubt it. But at least in this case, Jaw has that guy to learn from that tutelage we saw the same effect with Eric Bledsoe Chris Paul so I, that's the one thing he has going for him of course the rest of the roster isn't overly strong I think his fit next to Jaron long term is excellent Jaron can really cover up for him defensively and of course Jaron can pick and pop draw that opposing big out of the paint give Mor- Morant more room to operate I don't think it's a terrible situation but with any of these teams for the most part at the top of the draft you're dealing with a rebuilding situation you're going to see a lot of unproven talent on the roster yeah I mean if I'm if I'm Memphis, whether I'm taking Barrett um, or Morant, I, I want to keep Conley. I mean, I think Conley is going to be such a, a key piece for whatever rookie they bring in early on, not just because the guy can play and it'll take some pressure off whatever rookie, but uh, Conley is so well-respected in terms of his uh, locker room leadership and all those intangibles. And uh, man, if I'm Morant, what, what what better point guard to kind of learn under 
than a guy like Conley, who uh, is an under control player, a good defender. Um, what about the, the op- What about if, we, if they go with Barrett? Because I, I'm not, you know, I know I know the report is Morant, and I, I'd probably still bet my money that's who they go with. But they are going to bring in Barrett uh, for a workout or at least an interview. Um, what do you think about Barrett going to Memphis? It's really interesting, again, because you have, I think, the ecosystem. You have the structure with Conley there, of course. Positionally, it works a little bit cleaner if you go by traditional you know, positions. Memphis hasn't had a wing like Barrett who can play, make, dribble, pass, shoot, in theory, in a long time. It's kind of a position of need historically, and he can play off the ball. I think he can play off the ball a little bit better than he gets credit for. I actually like him attacking closeout, simplifying his reads to start in the pros. I'm kind of worried that he just gets all of this playmaking burden, all this pick and roll responsibility pushed on him in certain settings. And I think Memphis, if they do keep Conley in the situation, would be able to ease him into that. Let's move on to the Knicks because, uh, you know, we have this, this top three where everybody just assumes um, if Morant goes two, then Barrett goes three. And if Barrett goes two, Morant goes three. Do you think it should be as simple for that as the Knicks? Do you think this is, you know, I'll take whoever is left for me of those three of those two guys? I think for the Knicks specifically, you have to kind of incorporate league perception and trade value with just what they want to do moving forward with free agents. So who has the higher pedigree? Who has the most star power between, you know, let's say RJ falls to three versus him versus someone like Jarrett Culver? who they're also reported to be interested in, which is very interesting, just considering last draft, taking Kevin Knox, passing on both the Bridgeses, and then coming back and taking Culver over RJ. For some reason, that's just kind of inconsistent to me. But I think that they should look at RJ just because, again, there's so much fluidity when you, when it comes to bigger markets. And I do think RJ can fit around stars okay. Um, we'll, we'll kind of see if he has the mental approach to do that. But I think I would lean that way just for the Knicks specifically. Yeah, you know, that's... Thinking about RJ as, well, let's say the Knicks strike out in free agency. The Knicks add RJ. Um, you got RJ. He's always been that alpha dog guy. Uh, you'd almost think that like deep down he's rooting for the Knicks not to sign free agents so he can be the man in New York. If the Knicks do strike out and they take RJ and he's kind of left alone there, um, he's going to have all those touches uh, and all that freedom to kind of uh, create. You think that is a bad thing for RJ or is he better off, you know, kind of following, you know, where, where Tatum goes to Boston and he can kind of play to his strengths a little bit uh, and play behind some veterans. What do you think is better for RJ if, if he gets those early touches and the, and the freedom to play through mistakes on, on a shitty team versus coming in as like a third option behind a couple stars? I like the latter scenario. I like to ease him in. I want to see how he interacts with teammates, like higher pedigree teammates. And of course, like he was right in alignment with Zion coming into the year and we saw him fade Zion out. I want to get that instinct out of him if you can and just have him play team basketball. I'm a little bit worried. And this kind of goes to what you think RJ's upside. If you think he has some initiator upside to where he could be this primary playmaker, primary scorer, maybe you just want to throw him into the fire and have him work on pick and roll reads even I think it's kind of underrated as far as his ability to read the floor. It's more of a willingness thing. Mm-hmm. It just kind of goes to what you think, what his upside is. If you think he can be this kind of player, we've heard the James Harden comparisons. I think that's ridiculous. <laughs> but if you think he can be an iteration, let's say like a poor man's James Harden, maybe you do favor giving this guy touches in a setting that will allow him to develop in that fashion. Yeah, Honestly, that scares the hell out of me. Picturing RJ <laughs> as the number one option next year in New York uh, without stars playing next to Kevin Knox. I mean, I just, it's hard to see that being a successful yeah. operation. But I, I'm with you also. I, I think RJ's playmaking ability or secondary playmaking ability is so underrated. I mean, he is, he's a pretty good pick and roll passer and uh, a guy who can, you know, drive and kick and create shots for teammates. Like you said, it's that, that willingness, uh, to, you know, sometimes he looks off teammates and kind of predetermines his shot. What do you think the, listen, I'll, I'll say this. I, I like RJ. I have number three, but with like a low confidence level, like I feel safe about him that he's going to be a good NBA player, but something about me is just so hesitant about him. And that's strange for a guy who's very competitive, a, a freshman who's 18 years old, averaged 22 a game. What's the one thing that, that worries you that maybe Barrett will not be able to reach his ceiling? 
I think you look at a lot of wing creators in the league, and most of them are just dynamic pull-up shooters. Mm-hmm. That's when you get the high-level high guys. Of course, I don't want to compare them to like Kawhi, Paul George, Durant. That's in a different stratosphere. But even like the, the secondary guys, like Chris Middleton, for example, really good pull-up shooter. I worry a little bit with RJ's release point. He's kind of a stiffer shooter. He doesn't have that incredible, I'll elevate and change my release point. Like a lot of guys do. Like Even CJ McCollum can do mm-hmm. that. He can alter from at the top of his forehead to over his head. We haven't seen a lot of shot versatility from RJ. He's more of a step back guy mm-hmm. and he hasn't really shown he's worked on that I've, I've watched him at the hoops on the last two years or when he was the, the two years he was there and he's been working on that but he doesn't I don't think he has incredible touch so if he isn't going to be this pull-up shooter is he going to function in pe- pick and roll guys are just going to duck under screens and if he's a secondary ball handler I think he can shoot off the catch but can he get the ball in the mid post and shoot over the top of these bigger wing defenders I think when you talk about his upside which is what we're really concerned about at the top of the draft I think that's where my question marks come because he's not like this crazy athlete he's a very good athlete but he's not somebody who's going to blow by you he utilizes his strength so much as far as how he creates separation that's another concern is how he finishes in traffic uh, can he just run through guys like he in college, I, I don't think yeah, so. I think it's going to take an adjustment for him. And um, for these, for a score like him, you know, he doesn't have much of a polished one on one game. I mean, he, he relies so much on improvising and, yep. and sidestepping and finding that window and making shots. You just don't practice. He's got that nose for the rim where he could just find a way to put the ball in the bucket. But, you know, that shot clock's winding down uh, of a fourth quarter. I'm not sure what what move he's going to. And sometimes you see him go for a step back and he creates no separation. And it kind of looks awkward a little bit. And it, it, sometimes I'm just amazed that he was able to average 22 a game, even with Zion. Um, I don't know. He's really such a, an intriguing guy based on his production and, and his style of play. But uh, you can't argue with how successful he was. Um, what about, because I know this is what every New Yorker is talking about, uh, an Anthony <laughs> Davis trade. And, um, I don't know how much of Knicks basketball you watch this season. Probably not. I, I know you've seen Mitchell Robinson uh, before. What where would you say the line the Knicks should draw the line in terms of what to offer? Because the Knicks have okay, it's the number three pick. They took Knox, who I think is expendable. Mitchell, uh, and then Trier and Franklin Lakina. Uh, at what point do you think the Knicks should say, okay, we're not going to throw the house at you? But you know, where do they draw the line there? I think it has to do with future picks as far as unprotected. Like Dallas's pick, I would be fine with just because I think Dallas's young core is going to be really good. So I don't think that pick has as much value as an, a casual, a normal number one or an unprotected pick. The Knicks, if they include any of their own future picks, that's where I would get a bit reserved. But of course, I mean, the whole idea is if you bring in Anthony Davis, you might be getting Kyrie, might be getting you know other assets, maybe KD too. Who knows? It's just it's going to require more intel to make this case. I don't view anybody on the Knicks. I, I do like Mitchell Robinson. I thought that his defensive abilities, his movement skills for his size, blocks so many pull ups. He's crazy good as far as reactionary ability and, and just general athleticism. He's crazy good. But I, I don't know if there's anybody on the Knicks to where I draw the line. That's a high bar for I me know, personally. Just having, you know, I've lived in New York my whole life, and I remember when that Carmelo trade went down, I was all for give up everybody. Get that star player because it's so tough to get that star player. And uh, you just <laughs> worry that uh, you give up all these young guys and um, you know you trade them for, for one or two players and – uh, yeah, it t- of course, when you do that, when you completely reshape the roster, it takes a few years for the guys to gel, even if it is KD um, and Anthony Davis. I don't know, something about giving up every single one of them, um, plus you're going to probably have to throw in some type of future pick. Uh, something about it just seems wrong, even though you know, no, it's, to get Anthony Davis is like, holy crap. But uh, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm big on Mitchell Robinson. I think that he's the fact that he was so effective this year, I don't think he has any idea what the hell he's doing out there. And, and he still <laughs> was blocking shot second in the NBA and block shots. It's like, what happens if he actually learns how to play when he turns 22 years old? Yep. And then uh, what happens if Barrett turns into a 20.5 assist guy like DeRozan and Knox actually figures Then you're talking about a lot of good players to get one guy who's really honestly never won. Um, I know he is an MVP caliber talent. But uh, that's the, the tough part of being a general manager. And also, man, having the free agency after the draft makes it so difficult uh, to make decisions, right? A hundred percent. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I will say a lot of this comes down, again, to Eye of the Beholder. So what does David Griffin think about these prospects? What does he think about R.J. Barrett? And like, what does he think about R.J.'s creation? Like, What we didn't touch on is like his 
shake. He just doesn't have a lot of shake. Like if he could dribble and handle deceptively like a Kevin Porter Jr., I think you'd have a lot more guys buying into his general creation. He's just not that kind of athlete. He just lacks that lateral burst a lot of the time. Again, more of a power player. So if David Griffin likes him, though, I I think that's really interesting. But it kind of comes down to if you're a Knicks fan, if if you think RJ has like top 10 player in the league upside, I would be more conservative about how I approach this. I'm not quite. Okay. So you're making the call for the Knicks right now and you're on the clock, but Atlanta calls you and says, we'll give you eight and number 10 for number three. What do you say? I would do it. I think you're getting a player in this class. You're getting, I would take Brandon Clark, of course, because I'm really high on him. I would take him eight or 10. Uh, Cam Reddish chance for him to fall. I'm not super high on Cam. I think he's fine. I, I just think from a value play, I don't view RJ as significantly better than the eight and the 10 picks. I think you could probably make up that ground. And I'm actually pretty confident that you could. I agree. And I can't believe I'm saying that because when I first saw that rumor and I kind of, you know, when we first saw that Atlanta had eight and 10, naturally you think, okay, package them and try and move up. And you figure, okay, if you're top three, though, you're going to stick because you have the chance to land one of the guys who stands out um, as the most obvious stars. But uh, wow. I mean, you're right. I I think that the difference between three and eight is not as big as it seems. And uh, I've actually, uh, I I haven't jumped off that reddish wagon yet either. That would be really interesting if they could move down, uh, get reddish, and and then get another defensive player like Clark and when we get to Atlanta, we'll talk about all the options that they're going to have. But it'll be interesting to see if Atlanta does uh, make that move because I think Barrett would be a nice fit between Trey uh, and John Collins there. So uh, that's going to be uh, an interesting storyline, I think, to follow in terms of trades. Uh, I think Nick fans would probably go nuts if they passed on the chance to, <laughs> to add a star or at least the perception that Barrett and Morant are the big potential stars of this draft. Um, the Lakers at number four. First off, Got, got opinion right now. Do you think they actually pick at number four? I think they do. I'm not sure if they'll get a trade worked out um, that they find suitable. I think Garland's their guy, honestly. Like, it just seems to be all the reports, all the Intel guys are saying Garland. I, I would go Culver, but I, I think at the time they select Garland and maybe they look to trade back after that um, with maybe Phoenix or the Bulls. Cause I think the point guard run is going to happen. We know they were finite resource. There's three guys that are considered, you know, top seven picks. So they're going to go in some order. So we'll see how the Lakers go. But I guess if I had to bet on it right now, I'd say they stay and take Garland at four. I have, I have them taking Garland as well. And not because I love Garland, but because I think that there's a little more, I think he's a little more of a sexy pick compared to the other yep. options on the board. Although I do think Jared Culver is going to get, some appeal there. And uh, I've said this before, I think the best thing to ever happen to Garland this year in terms of draft stock was tearing his meniscus in his fifth game after averaging 19 through four games. Um, It was like the perfect time to go down and uh, not really have any of your weaknesses get exposed, which was bound to happen throughout the course uh, of the rest of the season. So let's talk about Garland right now. I mean, what do you think of him as a prospect and be in terms of number four overall value relative to, to pass definitely not there as far as value goes i think there's a lot of risk he's a score first point guard that's not a dynamic athlete i know he has the 30 foot pull-up reins he's very deceptive with his dribble he's an electric ball handler as far as his shiftiness east-west burst tremendous there i get the allure but I don't know if this guy can make decisions. You watch his tape back. You watch all of his pick and roll possessions, and he's not making good reads. He, he has turnovers where you know he's skipping the ball right into double covers when there's semi shit to on, on a dive wide open at the rim. I don't know how well he processes the game, and that's always been an issue because he grew up and he was kind of raised as a two guard. He's trying to make this transformation to the point, and I do think pull-up shooting and kind of the ability to score the ball and have self-gravity is the most important component for a point guard in the NBA. But you also have to have a modicum of decision-making, passing ability, and ability to read a defense if you're a primary initiator. And I don't know if he has those ingredients. Like what we saw at Vanderbilt wasn't very convincing, and we're not going to get a better sample. Yeah, he is the ultimate highlight guy. I mean, look at his YouTube clips, and you look, you think you're looking at you know Damian Lillard, but look at his weaknesses, and you completely see why uh, he's not you know the the expected to be the next superstar point guard in the NBA. Uh, I certainly have questions too. He's not number four on my old, on my board, um, but I could see how the Lakers would take him. And then then we have to talk about if the Lakers do take him, 
the fit with Lonzo Ball. And I know that the obvious draw is that uh, he's a shooter. And, and you put another shooter on that Lakers team that I think ranked number 29 in, in the NBA in three-point shooting. And uh, you got to surround LeBron with shooters, as they always say. And uh, Garland is that guy. But put him at two guard, and then uh, the Lakers' backcourt is Lonzo and Garland, I, does, I don't know if Garland – Garland's certainly not going to be able to guard two guards. What do you think about his fit if they can't pull off an Anthony Davis trade and, and they do take Garland and assuming they do take him, uh, they take him as I a I think starter. it's Garland's best fit in the draft just because LeBron will always optimize shooters. Like wherever he is, he will always get these mm-hmm. guys' looks. I do think Garland is more of a half-court shifty scorer. That's Lonzo's weakness. He's more of a transition point guard. He kind of plays off the ball a lot of times in the half-court because he can't handle the ball that well. He's not very good as far as a slasher. So I like it in theory. Again, LeBron's going to have the ball a lot. So Garland can play off. He can come off screens. That's something he did in the small sample. We saw very convincingly. I think he's fantastic off the catch catches on the hop, you know, has that one motion stroke from far out. So I I do think it's a good fit because it's not like he's going to be cast into this situation where he's running one five pick and roll. I don't know how dynamic of a downhill athlete he is. He's very quick and very electric, but he's not a great leaper. How does he finish over length? Like he has good touch. It seems like I don't think he's tray level touch, but he has okay touch there. And he's going to have to rely on those intermediate shots when he does slash. But it's a situation where he doesn't have to come in and like have the keys to the car. He's going to be eased in. Yeah, I think that that does work for him. If you are the GM in the Lakers, Jared Culver pick? pretty easily. I would just go for my highest guy on the board. I think that he fills a role on that team. Two way wing. And again, you don't have to have him in like this de facto point guard role. He can kind of play off the ball. What you think about his catch and shoot ability. There's some variance on that. That's there's variance with him as a prospect, basically based on his shooting. (laughs) And we'll see how good it is. But he at least brings that decision making. Mm -hmm. He reads the floor really well. That's kind of the funny thing about this draft is RJ, Jarrett Culver, are much better passers than Kobe White and and Darius Garland, which is interesting. So he kind of fills this Mm -hmm. bigger. You can keep your defensive size with the Lakers. So you keep Lonzo defending ones. You have a little bit more playmaking on the floor with Culver. So I really like that. Culver's number four on my board. So yeah, to me, uh, he makes sense. And uh, they could use um, uh, another shooting guard, I guess, uh, next to Lonzo. Um, I know scouts who don't love Culver uh, and uh, who, who they rank him later in the, in the late lottery range and don't think he's got that top five upside. Uh, he, man, that jump shot, it's weird to see him go from 38% to 30%. And the jump shot, like you said, it is probably going to be the swing skill that determines how high his ceiling goes. Uh, the makes look good, but there's definitely a little bit of a slow release, maybe a little bit of a hitch to that jump shot. Any thoughts on his motion? Uh, something that seems fixable, uh, just a, a small sample size, something in five years we're going to forget about. Any thoughts on it's his? It's very uh, unconventional. I think when you watch him shoot, there aren't a lot of guys that shoot like him. A really high release angle. His arm angle is very high. It's not coming out away more like a Cam Reddish. It's really That's how he can shoot over contests. And I like his ability as a difficult shot maker. It does bear mentioning he did overhaul his mechanics. So when he came into Texas Tech as a freshman, very extreme left shot line. What I mean by that is he brought the ball up on his left, kind of like Lonzo and he brought it across his forehead and Mm kind of whipped it. There wasn't a lot of control. If you watch his tape back, a lot of times he was finishing his wrist was away from the rim. So you weren't finishing even towards the basket. I think he's made improvements there and they're not really going to be evident on the stat page because he took so many shots off the dribble this year. I mean, as the primary creator, it was, his freshman year was a lot of catch and shoot. This year, I think the situation played a role. He did improve his free throw percentage. I can't sit here and say he's going to be a shooter for sure. Um, you see, even see him work mm-hmm. out and like his elbow bend is very unnatural. It's almost like he's double jointed. I, I try not to read so much into mechanics now just because guys can have different jump shots and still be good shooters. But there isn't a lot of reason mm-hmm. to be like this guy's going to be an incredible pull up shooter. Like he's not going to. We don't have a lot of evidence to say he's going to be Chris Middleton, for example, or even shoot catch and shoot threes at like thirty six percent. So I get why scouts are a little bit lower on him because of that. And you get the Evan Turner comparisons about a guy who can conceptually dribble pass and shoot, but can't really shoot that well. Um, I do think Culver's a much better defensive player. And that's why I like him so much is because you're getting that value on that end. But uh, it's definitely fair to have concerns about his jump shot. Yeah, no, that's a good breakdown uh, on Culver and his potential challenges. Really quick, I want to shout out to ShipStation. When you're selling online, getting your orders out can be a real pain. That's why you need ShipStation.com. It's the fastest, easiest, and most affordable way to manage and ship your orders. No matter where you're selling, Amazon, Etsy, your own website, 
ShipStation brings all your orders into one simple interface. ShipStation helps you get orders out quickly, save money on shipping costs, and keep your customers happy. And right now, Blue Wire listeners can try ShipStation free for 60 days when you use the promo code BLUE, B-L-U-E. There's absolutely no risk. You can start your free trial without even entering your credit card information. ShipStation works with all of your major carriers, including USPS, FedEx, UPS, even Amazon Fulfillment. So you can compare and choose the best shipping solution for you and your customer. No wonder ShipStation is the number one choice of online sellers. You'll ship more in less time with the best rates available. Just visit ShipStation.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Blue, B-L-U-E. That's ShipStation.com. Then enter the promo code BLUE. ShipStation.com. Make ship happen. What a great tagline. (laughs) Uh, Let's go. Number five overall, Cleveland Cavaliers. I think if you're looking at Cleveland, um, there shouldn't be too much thought about fit. I think at this point, you just need talent. You just need the most valuable asset you can find. Uh, we both have Culver, I guess, right there at number four. And, and I think you'd agree that if Culver is there, they should take him. Oh, absolutely. I, I feel pretty hard line on this. They just need exactly what you said. They need talent. We've seen some mocks that have them taking DeAndre Hunter. I don't think that's swinging enough. Like I like Hunter more than a lot of people do as far as, you know, he doesn't have a ton of feel and his game super rigid, but he's not the kind of guy that really raises the floor of a team. Like if he's playing off Colin Sexton, I don't really like that first projection. Like he's a guy that needs looks like if he was playing off LeBron, I think that's too rich at four, but at least he's getting spot up opportunities at volume. He can attack closeouts. I don't want him in any kind of, you know, secondary even creation role from the off. And I don't think Cleveland's a good enough fit for him. I would rather, you know, swing for the fences and see if Culver does pan out as a shot maker, especially with his defense and his ability to actually play make. I'm a little lower on Hunter there. Totally. I have, uh, I have Hunter at, I think around number 12 overall. And I think he's going to go higher than that just because he's a safe bet. And I think in this draft teams are going to value floor and low risk um, over looking for a superstar because they're tougher to identify. I think Hunter would be a, a weak play if the Cavs do take him at number five. I think they got to be a little more uh, risky. So, all right, we're watching that national championship game. <laughs> and Hunter, listen, I, it, I, I've i gone back and forth on it because I hate to take one game um, and, and change an opinion after I have watched these guys for two seasons. But Hunter really made it difficult on Culver, Culver in terms of creating his own shot, creating separation. Uh, where are you at with Hunter's defense? Is it overrated? Is it underrated? Uh, how good of a defender can he be um, at, at the NBA? Level? I love his on-ball defense, and I think that's what we saw against Culver. He is so technically sound. He's incredibly good technically with his length, his ability to utilize his strength in space. He rarely gets beat. You, you don't see the steal percentage on the block percentage. He doesn't go for a lot of those. Like he doesn't bite on fakes. He likes to stay sound and just not let you get around him. So that part I like, I, I buy into him as a guy that you say, okay, go, go, go guard Paul George for 38 minutes. And maybe he doesn't shut him down, but he at least has the length to stick with him. He can wall him off as on drives. I like him in that respect, not as enamored off the ball. And of course we have to factor in the pack line, taking away the middle and stuff like that. He does make rotations one pass away, but you would, you would see more playmaking. I, I think that you have to look at the actual context and the situation and the plays being made. A lot of people made this um, excuse for DeAndre Ayton last year at Arizona and said, you know, it's the pack line when he wasn't contesting a shot that he was two feet from. And we see that from Hunter. Mm-hmm. And that kind of worries me a little bit because that says like, does he really get the game? Does he really feel the game? But I do like his perimeter defense. I think he's more of a perimeter defender than an interior defender. Okay. So the Cavs are, are looking at wings and I think we're going to tie this into the Suns as well, uh, because I think these two guys, both Hunter and the guy I'm about to mention, could fit um, at six for the Suns. But Cam Reddish uh, versus Hunter, <laughs> what do you think about Reddish's fit in Cleveland? Now, the, the thing with me with, with Reddish, when I go back and forth on, and I really can't decide, um, we just saw Reddish, first of all, rewind a little bit, high school, point wing, um, the number one option, then you know he goes to Duke. He's playing behind three different guys with Trey Jones handling the ball as well. And he kind of struggled in that off-ball role um, as, as a secondary player, kind of standing around a little bit. But then you know you think in the NBA he'd be better off um, eased into a little, ease, easing in, you know, playing behind veterans. Even though we just saw him struggle, or is it better off going to a place like Cleveland where suddenly he's going to get touches, he's going to get the opportunity to probably hand to the ball, get some ball screens? What do you think about Reddish's fit? 
in Cleveland uh, versus his fit, you know, playing for a much better team where we kind of saw uh, the same situation that he was in at Duke. Again, I prefer the latter. I kind of group him in with DeAndre Hunter. They're situationally dependent. Like if they go to the Lakers or they go to the Hawks, for example, in that range, I love him playing off Trey Young, Kevin Herter. I'm worried about him in a kind of primary or secondary role. I know some people thought like maybe we have T-Mac coming into the air. He's not that caliber of athlete. I think you can draw conclusions based on the sample we had. He, his handle isn't that great. He loses the ball a lot. His handle's actually pretty loose. He's not a good finisher in traffic. He doesn't have that kind of one foot pop. There's been times I always cite this play, but he came off like a down screen curl and he had a wide open lane to the rim and the defender that was guarding the rim was on the weak side dunker spot. And he like, 95% of NBA athletes dunk this ball. He not only didn't dunk because he couldn't get enough lift, he got blocked from behind. So it's like, I just don't <laughs> think his athleticism is at the level that people think it is. And I think he's much more of a tertiary off-movement shooter. That's why I want him is taking volume threes, attacking bigger spaces and closeouts. His decision-making is also really bad. Like He attacks closeouts, <laughs> so many charges. So I want to really refine his role and kind of ease him into it. Yeah, I was kind. I mean, I think we were all kind of hoping that he'd be that that point wing, but finished with ninety five turnovers, I believe, to seventy assists. Right, the decision making wasn't there. His finishing was brutal. I mean, it, it looked like he had no idea what angle to take uh, and how to finish through rim protection. Uh, but he's a shot maker, and uh, he he's got some some pretty confident uh, range. And and I thought he, I feel pretty good about his defensive projection. The Suns are on the clock right now. There's a lot of talk about you know point guards. Um, are they going to trade the pick? Um, first off, I'll, I'll give you my opinion right off the bat. I don't. I don't think they should take a point guard. I, I just think that adding a, a rookie ball handler to what they already have is just a, more of a messy situation. I think they're better off signing a even if he's a low end veteran. Just get a serviceable role play, a guy who's been there before um, to run the show than adding a Garland um, or even a Kobe White. But do you think that they should consider um, drafting one of these wings or, or combo forwards in Reddish um, or uh, DeAndre Hunter? That's really tough. I mean, again, we keep saying this. Ideally, Culver falls to six. I think he's a brilliant fit on this roster. Honestly, it mm-hmm. keeps Booker at point guard, but I won't elaborate on that. If, if it's Kobe White, Cam Reddish, DeAndre Hunter on the board, I don't want to be the guy making this choice. I, I think I don't know if there's a right choice. I, I think I would look to move the pick for more of a veteran type player. Of course, I, I don't think they're going to get Mike Conley for this pick, but I would definitely shop it. I don't really trust any of these guys in the situation. You play Kobe White there, and I think they would take Kobe White in the situation. It's it's like you take the ball a little bit out of Booker's hands. I know that Kobe White can space the floor. I really trust his off the catch game. It's very very good as far as his you know, hopping into shots, got the NBA range with the one motion stuff. I think his defense is kind of overrated. I think people look at the size and say, oh, he's 6'5". He can guard two positions, but he's not even that great at guarding one position when you talk about better athletes (laughs) and strengths. So do you really think you can functionally play long-term? If we're talking building for the playoffs, if that's the goal for the Suns, can you really play Kobe White with Devin Booker with DeAndre Ayton defensively? No. no. (laughs) Any any rookie point guard we throw in there – um, is going to have the same end result. And something about the Suns team, like, uh, man, even if Aiton averages 20 and 10 this year, I mean, how much better are they going to be? Uh, I don't know. Something about the makeup of the roster, it's like no matter what they do, I find a problem with it. Um, you know, where do you think the Suns team is in terms of their rebuild? Are they on the right path or did they, or, or is there a, a wrong mix of players there? I mean, you look at your two best players at least two best prospects. Booker's easily their best player, but in, in Booker and Aiton, both those guys are very offense first players. And it's very hard to build unless Aiton takes a dynamic step defensively. You look at that ceiling and you think it's capped because they're playing more one side of the ball. Like Mikhail Bridges, I love Mikhail Bridges. He's a great team defender. He's the smartest player in that team, but he can only do so much. It's not like he's a lockdown wing defender. You know what I mean? So the infrastructure just isn't there in my opinion, to move forward. And it's going to require mostly Aiton to really hit that ceiling. But also Booker. Is Booker the primary creator? I think a a lot of Suns fans want to see a traditional point guard in that role. And I think that lessens Booker's value because he's really good on the ball. He's really improved as a decision maker, improved as a passer. If you put Kobe White next to him and Kobe's running the show, I think it would be more you know, egalitarian. I think they'd move it around. But that, that diminishes his value a little bit. So I'm very curious to see. This is one of the swing teams, I think, in the top 10. I'm very curious to see what their trajectory is. 
Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what, what they do at number six if they move the pick, if they draft a point guard, or uh, even though I mentioned DeAndre Hunter as my 12th guy, I think he would be a decent fit there you know, as a defensive-minded player next to, uh, next to Aiden at the four. Let's move on to uh, Chicago, because I think Chicago is another really interesting team. It brings up this whole other debate of best player available um, versus uh, fit, and they're kind of locked up at, at four positions on the floor. And chances are that the best player available to the Bulls, well, it's possible this won't be the case, but it's also possible that the best player available to the Bulls, they're already going to have a guy who's locked into the starting lineup at that position, whether it's you know Wendell Carter and marketing up front. Um, they just acquired Otto Porter and, and you know they have Zach Levine there at the two. Do you think that they're going to take a point guard no matter what? Or do you think they'd be willing to take a guy uh, and have him come off the bench because they already have guys at the two, three, four, and five? I think they're going to go point guard. Just realistically, you look at how the board looks to be falling. Unless we see a trade-up of some sort for a point guard, I don't even know who that would be. They would take Kobe off the board. I, I think they go Kobe White here. I, I don't expect Darius Garland to be here. So I, I think they do draft. I hate doing this in the draft. I hate when teams do this, when they when they go positional need. Like I get it. Mm-hmm. Like cer- cer- Certain teams can't optimize certain players. You absolutely should take into account your ecosystem. And, and if you can really, you know... Grant Williams, for example, is a short roll big. If, if he goes to Portland, I think that makes a lot of sense if Damian Lillard is getting trapped. But this situation is just like, okay, we need a point guard. Let's take Kobe White. For me, I, some people are really high in him. I'm not as high. I have him more towards the later lottery. I don't think the value is there. And this is kind of my issue with how teams draft sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's particularly point guard. Like If you're drafting a point guard number seven overall, I think the expectation is that he's got to be the top 15 starter at his position in the NBA. Uh, and I, I don't, I don't have that confidence that White is going to be that guy. On the other hand, I'd have a tough time giving them a bad grade um, if they did take White at number seven, just based on the other options on the board. Uh, I'm trying to think, you know, who else do you think stands out as somebody that the Bulls should seriously consider? Let's say if if Garland goes four and Kobe White goes six. Yeah, I mean, it's going to come down to a handful of guys. We kind of know who the top eight picks are going to be, in my opinion. With I'm not going to mention number one <laughs> to break the rule here, but Morant, <laughs> good man, good man. Morant, Barrett, Garland, Culver, White, Reddish, Hunter. I think that's going to be the top eight picks. So it's kind of who's left there. And I, I agree. I think it probably right now I would lean Reddish is on the board and they just traded for Otto Porter. So it's hard to kill him. And I don't think Reddish is such an incredible talent that he trumps Kobe White. I mean, I have Redd- Reddish ahead of White, but it's not like a, a sin or something. It's not a that obvious of a pick. So I wouldn't kill it either, even though it's technically not like how I like to approach the draft. I'd rather them, you know, try to trade out or trade down. Mm-hmm. So you really love Brandon Clark, huh? I do. I, I think in this class specifically, I get the, the issues with him, but yeah, I, I think there's upside there and I think he's going to go underrated because of the measurables and you watch him play and it's just like, holy shit, like the guy's, He's an incredible functional athlete, and I think defense is normally undervalued at the top of the draft. Yeah, I think he's also, again, I'm, I'm talking about if if those guys are gone, number seven, or seven overall is pretty high for a 22-year-old who's not a high upside offensive player. But you know what? Uh, if, if they drafted Brandon Clark at number seven um, as a guy to, to come in and, uh, and just play to his strengths, run, jump, react, uh, make plays, bring, bring that contagious energy – I'm really curious to see where Brandon Clark goes because I'll admit he was not really on my radar to start the season, probably outside my top 50. Um, and, uh, you know, he had the second highest PER next to uh, you know who. And, um, <laughs> you know, he's just, uh, it's tough to argue with his effectiveness, even in a, in a weak uh, division. So I'm really, really curious to see where he stacks up. He's one of those guys where I mentioned before where he could be top 10 on one board and in the 20s. On another, so I'm curious to see uh, where Brandon Clark goes and um, and who ends up taking him. Number nine, Washington Wizards. What a, what a tough situation they're in. Um, you know, we, we know about John Wall's injury, so they forced to trade Otto Porter, and now they got Bradley Beal, who's just a stud. But it's like you keep him, you're kind of wasting his peak prime years during seasons when you know the Wizards are going to lose. I think. Uh, look, Logic says you got to move him, but you're probably not going to get equal value. What's your take on on the Wizards' draft spot at number nine and just their general position as a franchise? 
it's a really tough spot at nine. I mean, a lot of people have been linking Sekou Demboya, their uh, developmental prospects. So if you look at their trajectory a couple years into the future, it makes sense because they're probably going to be rebuilding. And that kind of triggers the Bradley Beal conversation. doesn't make any sense to rebuild with Bradley Beal. Like he's ready to win now. Um, I would try to trade him. I don't know what the return is going to be. You would think the Lakers would be really interested, even with the fourth pick. Like, I think they would look to move on that. You, have, you include more, the Lakers would, of course. But I think that would be something worth discussing. It's a tough spot in this draft. Like, again, I would take Brandon Clark. I think he's the best prospect on the board, but the NBA doesn't view him that way. So it's not even worth entertaining. Like, he might come into play at 10 to the Hawks, but I think more towards 11 to 14 is when you start entertaining him more seriously. It's, it's a very tough spot for the Wizards. The way the board fell this year, I just don't see a lot of options because not only is, is there not like an obvious prospect that's realistic, I don't know what kind of trade value this pick's going to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, they really got screwed in the lottery. They 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 needed to get lucky, and uh, I just don't see any realistic way to get out of this hole that they're in anytime soon. Uh, I apologize to Hawks fans. I skipped over number eight. Let's go to Atlanta because that that's also one of the hot topics of this draft with two picks, uh, with a franchise on the rise, with two potential cornerstone players and Trey and John Collins and even Kevin Herter. I think is a, is a really good player. Who do you think is the one guy that th- that the Hawks should target, that, that they should go into this draft with their fingers crossed, hoping falls to them at number eight? Oh, definitely Jarrett Culver for me. I love his fit as a ball mover in that system, uh, spacing the floor. It's going to take a very specific order of operations for him to fall to eight. Like You're going to need probably DeAndre Hunter to go four, Reddish five. Reddish is the wild card here, and then you have yep. you know the point guard six, seven. That's the only realistic scenario I would think – originates to where that's actually a reasonable option. I, I'm not with them trading up necessarily to to four to three packaging both eight and ten. I don't think the value is there for that play. Just in in a vacuum. I just don't support that. But Culver is the one interesting piece just because I do feel like he would fit really well with what they have, both in terms of like mental approach. Like Culver has no problem with Trey Young dominating the ball and like initiating the offense. He's very used to Filling in a, a team construct, especially his freshman year, I think he can do he can operate well in those confines. So I really like that fit. I think Cam Reddish, like we talked about with the Lakers, is also an interesting fit here, just because it puts him in a position to succeed. Yeah, I'm, I think eight would be Culver's floor, and I do think it is it is possible that he does slip to number eight. I think the Hawks are in such a good spot. There's so many guys, no matter who's available to them. There's a lot of guys that, that are going to fit uh, that current rust, roster, um, whether it's Siku. Um, uh, or a reddish or Culver, um, or even, you know, if they had to reach their guys who feel, you know, Romeo Langford would be a nice two guard there. Although I think that would be a, a reach as well. Um, and then they have number 10. It's going to be really cool to see what they do with both picks. If they make both picks, if they deal one, if they package both, um, number 10 overall, uh, is there anybody who is kind of maybe projected later in the lottery that would be a surprise pick that that they could target at number 10 that maybe not everybody's thinking about? I think there's two guys. I'm not sure if either are surprises, but they're both, in theory, upside plays. I think one is Jackson Hayes. He's kind of had his stock. It feels like his stock has fallen a little bit, and maybe that's more towards watching the playoffs, and you realize how valuable is a pick-and-roll dive big who can't space the floor yet. He has touch, doesn't have the mechanics yet. We don't know about defense. He's more of a projection moving forward. He's more of a developmental guy. I will say the the guy that would surprise a lot of people that watched college basketball this year is Nasir Little. I don't mm-hmm. think if you can rule him out going 10 just based on pedigree. Elite kid. I, I, I love the kid. I mean, his charisma, everything is off the floor. He's one of the best interviews. He's going to kill that process. He probably already has. Uh, but if you watch his college tape, there's just not any reason to believe he should be the 10th pick in this draft. Yeah, so that's I- kind of what you had. No, I was going to say, I'll tell you, Nazir Little's camp and his agent, they think he's going top 10. They are, they uh, they think that he's impressing during workouts, and they think he's going to surprise a lot of people uh, based on where he goes. I want to get to him in a, in a few minutes. Um, what about Goga Badazi? Because I'm, he's uh, an international guy. Most guys probably haven't seen him. I don't think he's going to go as high as I like him. I just talked to an executive the other day who had him number seven overall, and that's kind of where I have him. I have him six, actually, which is uh, really high. I'm just uh, I'm just a fan of his fit. Um, how, how much have you seen of him, and what can you tell the people who haven't seen Goga much? I have him at the same spot. I have him six as well, so I'm Ooh. very high on him. I think the issue, if we're first getting right to the weakness, is how well can he just, can he defend in space? And you get some 
varying opinions on that. I watched him. I'm not in love with his balance as far as closing out his you know north south shift change of direction. I don't think he's going to be a switch big by any means. I think it can hold in a straight line or maybe moving laterally to an extent, but I think we overrate that quality. I think it's more about changing directions and how you change directions um, closing out as well. So I don't really trust him there. He's more of a drop big, but I think his offense is really underrated. Um, he's a guy who can really space the floor. I think he, his mechanics are very sound. And if you're talking about a team like the Hawks, where they run that double high a lot with Trey, John Collins diving to the rim, they usually have Dwayne Dedman pop. I think Goga can really fill that role. And I love his ability on the short roll. I think he's coordinated. I think his coordination is very underrated. He can put the ball on the ground. He can make a decision as far as passing the ball. So there's a lot to like offensively. I love the physicality. I think he's going to be able to defend the post. He's like the only guy in this class center-wise that can shoot and also has that positional size and toughness as an interior defender. So the question with him is ultimately ceiling. Like how, how far can this guy take you in the playoffs if that's your your route? But I do think he's a very good player. He's a very good bet to be, in my opinion, I'd be I wouldn't surprise me at all if he's one of the five best players in this class. Like he's just that solid. Yeah, I mean, I think it's crazy that he's not getting enough uh, recognition. I know he's an international guy, but uh, I think he is such a safe bet. Um, I have a high confidence level that he's going to be, like you said, I can't say he's going to be a, saw, a star. He's not. He's not Jokic, but I have such a high confidence level that he's going to be a good NBA player for a long time. That that's enough for me. I don't know whether he's the answer for the Hawks, who could probably use some defense, but um, he's more of an offensive guy, I think, but uh, man, he is somebody who I think deserves more recognition. Okay. So that's our top 10. I want to play a little quick hitter buy or sell <laughs> with guys who are raising their stock right now or who their stock is uh, perceived to be on the way down. Just quick reaction, quick thoughts, whether you're buy or sell uh, cabin jelly from FSU. Uh, sell. I don't buy the movement skills. I think he's a little rigid as an athlete. A little bit too much load time for me as far as leaping ability, protecting the rim. I get that he can shoot, but can he pass at all? We haven't seen him do that. Can he make decisions? I, I'm not selling. I mean, I'm not buying at the level that I think he might go, which is potentially top 20. Yeah, I'm I'm actually buying. I actually like him. I, and I'll admit, I, I kind of okay. caught, caught on a little bit late. Uh, I'm, I'm into the jumper. Uh, I think he's Every time I hear him speak, I'm more uh, impressed. And um, yeah, there's the passing is a problem. I'm not quite sure how disciplined or great defensively he is, but there's something about him. I just like his trajectory um, and his energy. I don't know. Something about him, I can't really pinpoint, but I'm, he's somebody I would take a chance on in that mid-first round. How about Horton Tucker, Iowa State? Ooh, that's a he's one of the toughest guys for me in the class. Also, me, I think he might be. Let me mention his, his stock seems to be on the way down. There was also a recent uh, arrest, and there are some question marks popping up. I'm not even positive he's a first rounder. Yeah, I, he for me, he's more of a late first, early second developmental guy. I think he's a second contract guy. I'm a little worried about his fit as far as will he just fade out. I don't think he has an NBA ready skill right now. Like he's a good dribbler. That's his main thing. Is like he for his size, he can really handle the ball. Not a good, um, not a good shooter yet. Doesn't make good decisions. I mean, this guy was benched on his college team in favor of Halliburton, a fellow freshman who's incredibly smart. But it, I think it goes to speak. It, a little bit that he's just not ready for the NBA. I'm a little bit worried about situations. So I would say more sell, but it depends on what range. Like I'm fine with him in the twenties. Yeah, I'm selling too. And I got you get excited because he's, you know, he doesn't turn 19 until Thanksgiving. Um and there obviously the room to grow when he was productive this year, but I'm not sure what his bankable skill is. And uh I don't know. I he's somebody I let let somebody else take a chance on him. Um if you can get him in the second round, that's great. But there are other guys I'd I'd rather go for in the first round. Okay. Uh Guy whose stock, from what I'm hearing, is going up and could be um, a, probably not top 10, but lottery, and that's uh, Nas Little, which you kind of briefly touched on earlier. Give me a quick breakdown of Little and why you like him. I like him just from... I think he's going to get everything that he has on the floor. Like he's very competitive. You hear him talk very cerebral. I think he's going to improve and he's going to put the time in. He's going to put the work in to be as good as he possibly can. He, I think he added too much strength too quickly coming into the college season and it made him a little bit more stiff as far as movement. I didn't think he was moving as well at North Carolina as he did you know, at the all-star circuit in high school basketball, for example. So if you can get him to trim down, I think the conception of him, this is how he's going to have to win. He's going to have to be a switch defender and he's going to have to be a, a, like a dynamic pull-up threat. If, if you're talking about like elite level ceiling upside, I mean, 
I think you'll live with switch defender makes threes off the catch. I think his shooting's underrated. I think I will say that for him. Like he didn't shoot the ball that well at UNC. I like his mechanics. He did seem to tinker with his shot a little bit, moving it to the side of his head. I like to shot a lot more at the AAU level. So maybe he gets back to that. So there's some untapped shooting upside, but what's the, who's the best player in the league that doesn't have like basketball feel. It's very tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, he reminds me a little bit of Jeremy Grant. Um, and uh, that's the kind of, role maybe I see him uh, we'll see how his shooting develops um, I, I saw him more as a small forward in high school and then you watch him in college and it's like I don't know how he could play the wing I think he's more of a small ball four uh, I didn't love his feel for the game uh, he seems to be a great kid everybody raves about him off the floor and you figure he, he's worth betting on to, to figure it out a little bit but I don't know how, how much upside I see I think like you said sit, situational fit um, is going to play a big role um, in his development what about uh, Kevin Porter who I think is stock is has always been kind of uh, on the fence and I think right now from what I'm hearing he will not be a lottery pick it sounds like he could slip a little bit yeah I mean who the hell knows probably the biggest <laughs> wild card in the entire class yeah. as far as I mean we were both right away when we saw him dribble we were like okay let's go like we asked somebody with individual shake like this guy can create a shot at will best shot career in the class not sure if he's that great of a pull-up shooter but all we did is see him take step backs this year. That's all he did. He had driving lanes. He had avenues to the rim. He did not utilize his athleticism functionally. I think he's a little underrated on the defensive end as far as his instincts for playmaking and his quickness. But I don't know what to do with him. I, he's one of the guys that you really have to have a lot better intel. How much of a worker is he? Is he going to put the time in? I don't know how he fits in a five-on-five game at the NBA level right now. Yeah, I don't know how if he has a good feel for scoring within the flow of the offense and an impact. Yes. Right? You know, does, can he impact winning? We know he could probably win a one-on-one tournament, but um, five-on-five, can he impact winning? Can he, can he score within the offense as opposed to kind of hold and take a contested two-point jumper? But uh, in terms of talent, you know, it's kind of the cliche, but he is crazy talented. Um I'd probably let somebody else take him in the lottery, but once we start moving um, into the teens and twenties, I'd, I'd be happy um, if he fell into my lap. Darius Baisley um, skipped college, skipped the G League, played decent at the NBA Combine. Stock seems to be up. Good kid, eighteen years old. What are your thoughts? It's up for me. I don't know how high. I would be fine with the team taking him at the end of the first round, early second round. I think that's the range I'd be comfortable with. I was pretty impressed with him at the Combine. I had the prior of Hoop Summit um, where he didn't really look like he knew what he was doing. And the Combine was much better for me. Like He made some passes. He made some reads. I thought athletically, he looked pretty functional. He looked very coordinated with the balls, a dribbler. Don't really buy the shot. Very two-motion, very mechanic-y. But I I think at that range, you just roll the dice. And I I do like some of the fluid athleticism that he showed was pretty impressive. Last guy, Nick Claxton. Uh, definitely buying. I have him top 20. I think that he's one of the guys in this range where you can see the upside with like a, a switch big who really moves his feet. Well, um, I think he can switch honestly, like one through five in some cases, not at all against all lead guards, but he at least has the length in the agility. We saw him stay in front of Curran Roach twice this year in that one possession. One of the most impressive possessions I've seen from a big in space in a long time. He was obviously miscast on his Georgia team as like this initiator type on offense. You saw him grab and go a lot, initiated the offense. Not going to be his role, but the key with him is he's developmental. He's going to take a while to add strength, uh, who knows if he can shoot the ball? I'm, I'm a little lower in his mechanics, even though he does have touch. We'll see how that progresses. He's just one of the guys I see in this range from like 20 to 35, 20 to 40, where he's likely to go, that I can actually see the return being worth yeah, it I'm down the road. Yeah, I'm curious to see how high he goes. I, sometimes I always wonder if like late in the season, we're always kind of looking for somebody new and he's the obvious um, <laughs> uh, exciting defensive versatility master um, who, who has a offensive upside with the three ball and and uh, ability to face up and play. Claxton uh, is an interesting wild card. Could be a, a steal in this draft. We'll see how high he goes. Before we close out, um, I just want to uh, make a little announcement. Blue Wire is teaming up with Harry's. To make sure our listeners are shaving comfortably, go to harrys.com slash bluewire to save $10 on a value trial set, which includes a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, a travel blade cover. You get all that. For just three bucks, shipped right to your door. Enough with the cheap razors. It's totally worth trying Harry's. Harry's is fixed shaving by combining a simple, clean design with quality and durable blades at a fair price. Harry's founders were tired of paying for razors that were overpriced and overdesigned. 
Harry's bought a world-class blade factory in Germany that's been making quality blades for over 95 years. Join the 10 million who've tried Harry's. Claim your trial offer by going to harrys.com slash bluewire. All of Harry's blades come with a 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. Again, make sure you go to harrys.com slash bluewire to redeem your razor for $3. Um, actually, Cole, before I let you go, there's three guys um, I just want to touch on because it's this is an interesting year. A lot of good players got hurt. And um, a few of them could be really good prospects and they could slip. And over the years, we've seen guys uh, slip in the draft because of injuries. And teams have probably regretted it, whether it's Embiid uh, or maybe Karis LeVert or Spencer Dinwiddie. So Bull Bull was the first one to really go down. I guess Garland was, but we already talked about him. Bull Bull goes down. Where are you with Bull Bull? I'm not buying. Um, it depends, of course, on where he goes, and there's always the upside play. I do think his shooting is special, like for his size. Like his touch is incredible. He can shoot above the break NBA threes. I'm not worried about the lower release point from there just because his release is so fast. So you you look at him, you say, yeah, he can fill some kind of Brooke Lopez role with the ability to handle the ball a little bit. He does have the coordination to like in and out dribble you, which is really impressive for his size. I just don't buy him physically as far as his high center of gravity, him holding up against, you know, can you imagine him banging with Steven Adams? I think that's going to be a problem. Eight pounds. And <laughs> <laughs> it's just a really, it's a really tough sell from a physical standpoint. And some of the effort stuff this year, man, just that one play against Iowa where he allowed, you know, one of Iowa's, I think it was Garza duck in on him without yeah. any kind of resistance. I don't think I've ever seen a big do that in, you know, having a motor for a big is one of the most important things. You're going to play hard. You're going to run the floor. Like this guy's a complete yeah, wild. I was at that game, man. He's it's like he just doesn't he doesn't know that he's not playing hard. I think he knows the criticism about him that he's not super competitive. His sense of sense of urgency is just not there. I just don't think he has an understanding of how to activate that sense of urgency. But again, man, those legs. He doesn't do himself any favors by wearing those short shorts either. I don't know why guys do that when they have skinny legs. Right? It makes him look <laughs> even skinnier. Um, one guy who I love, and I've, I don't know anyone that's had him this high, but, uh, Chuma Okiki. I have number 15 overall. I, I just loved where his trajectory was going before that torn ACL. You know, the, the mocks have him going early second round. I have him going late first round. If, if it was me, I would take him in the mid first round. Where are you at in Okiki? I'm right there with you. I'm not sure if I have him right at 15, but he's definitely a top 20 guy. I think he's one of the smartest players in the class. I he, He's a guy, right when I first watched him, he reminded me a little bit of Kenrich Williams. Not the same player. He has more length, but like just that IQ on the floor, especially team defense, knows how to anticipate, and he makes awesome rotations. He has that length. And then offensively, a guy who really moves the ball, he can really pass on the move. Like if you put that guy in a short roll, I think he's going to make great decisions there. It just comes down to the jump shot. And I think I have some optimism there. I, I think he's going to shoot. I'm a little lower on his space defense than most people seem to be. Like I've seen some videos that like he's this dynamic switch defender. I don't see him that way. He's a little slow footed. Watch him against Trey Jones, for example. Trey Jones just makes easy work of him. You see that routinely throughout his tape. So I think it's more of an off ball defender somewhere athletically between Kyle Anderson and Robert Covington. Like he's not as bad of an athlete as Anderson, but he's not like even to Covington's level, but I, I do really like him. Yeah. I, I mean, if, if I'm, if I'm a, a team in the twenties um, and I know I'm not getting any star player or a guy who's going to come in and help me right away. Uh, give me, give me Okiki and let him, you know, break out in, in year number two. Um, last guy, we all loved him. Jonathan Porter. <laughs> I had to bring him up two ACL tears within one year. I don't think I've, I can't remember anyone that's ever done that. Uh, I'm hearing his agent thinks he's going to go mid mid second round. Uh, where do you what do you think? Where would you take him in this draft? I would be all over that if I can get Jonte in the mid second round. I think that's one of the best value plays in the class. Like maybe it doesn't work out medically. I really hope it does. But he came to the combine and he was trimmed down. They lost a lot of weight when he mm -hmm. suffered this injury. And he's to me, if he was in this class, you would see how smart he is compared to the other freshmen. Like this guy just gets it. He's his mental processing is at a, high, a level way higher than even Zion, for example, as far as his rotations. And he has to be, of course, he's not nearly. Oh, I did. 58th minute. You blew it. I got on a roll and I completely forgot. 
Damn it. Um, there, goes your, there, there goes your invite back. <laughs> but uh, I mean, his rotations, his quick passing ability. We watched him against Vanderbilt last year. That was one of the best. That would have been one of the best games for any freshman this year. So I'm, I'm in dribble, pass, shoot, make great decisions. Uh, I think if he trims down, maybe you get a little bit more better agility and you can play the four next to like a bigger rim protector. I think that's an option for him. And I just think there's no there's no risk in the mid 40s where he's going to go. I would have him. I'm probably going to have him top 20, frankly. Like I'll take the risk. Well, yeah, I think a team's going to be pumped uh, to get him in the 40s, particularly after they interview him. Uh, I think that they'll see uh, only upside and, and zero risks that late. Anyway, I've kept you long enough. Uh, Coleswicker, follow him on Twitter. Uh, check out the Stepien, one of the best draft analysts out there. Cole, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. And I'm sorry for blowing the Zion at the uh, at the close here. <laughs> and you were you were right at the finish line. Um, anyway, uh, thanks for listening, everybody, for the first episode of the lottery. I'm John Washman. Tweet at me, talk trash, ask questions. I'm happy to uh, interact, and I hope you tune in next time. Later.